This episode contains descriptions of suicide, PTSD, and substance use. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. In today's episode, we will hear from survivors, young and old, about the lasting effects of being sent away. Many survivors can remember their first day or night in the troubled teen industry. The intake process, which often involves a violating strip and cavity search. The shock of having gone from sleeping in your own bed to being institutionalized in the span of a day or two. The first time hearing the screams of others, seeing children in restraints. The realization of what you're in for. But with the same clarity, many can also remember their first day out. Often, it's their 18th birthday, a much-anticipated day when, suddenly, they're free. Your first day out, like, what do you do? Where do you go from there? What's your first step? Well, I mean, I'll just be very honest with you. I was 17, and um, I had no idea about money, about, I didn't even know, like, smartphones were things. I'd been sent away so long, like, there was so much that I did not know about. And I was like culturally like years behind my peers. I felt like I just had no roadmap and, and no skills at all to do anything. Today, we look at a crucial aspect of this narrative. The years and decades after leaving these programs where the true trauma often unfolds. I, you know, left at 17 and yeah, you know, it's, it's been really rough. It's been really rough. Imagine, if you will, the day that you turned 18, or even the day that you moved out. You're suddenly thrust into adulthood, finding an apartment and a job, paying taxes and bills, making friends and connections, taking care of yourself. Suddenly, it feels like you're supposed to know how to do life. It's scary, terrifying even, but your peers and your family are behind you. You have a support system, and you have a plan. For those who spend their 18th year reacclimating to the world after the troubled teen industry, that is often not the case. When Casey graduated from his last placement at 17, the joy and anticipation of freedom was quickly overshadowed by the crushing realization that, frankly, he had no idea what to do. I was homeless for a while um, and just lived with friends and lived on the street. And then things got better from there at a long journey out of that and, you know, into the life I have now. But yeah, I mean, I was totally, totally unprepared. Having spent his formative years in wilderness programs and therapeutic boarding schools, Casey was thrust into a new world. Not only did the programs leave him with emotional trauma, but they had failed to do the important work of a real education and upbringing, preparing him to build a life. The world outside of the TTI was big and new and loud and overwhelming. There were smartphones, new celebrities, years of cultural touchstones that he had missed entirely. There was the simple fact that Casey had nowhere to sleep that night. Since his parents had driven him into the Georgia wilderness at 14, he had been counting down the days to adulthood, and like many survivors, he simply didn't have the luxury to plan a single day beyond that date. Actually, not to be dramatic, but I really actually truly felt like I was never going to leave. Like I could not imagine, you know, after you're there for so long, you start to just not be able to imagine what life was actually like before that. After spending two and a half years in a lockdown facility, survivor Caroline Cole, who you most recently heard from in episode eight, was put into the same situation. At first, she was thrilled. 
the day to which she had been counting down was finally upon her. But she, too, was entirely unequipped. I finally got out of the program and immediately just wanted to, you know, move on with my life and finally be able to participate in life again. I feel like I missed out on a lot. Like I missed out on, you know, some of the most formative years and especially those college preparatory years in high school where the school kind of gives you what you need to be successful and to go into college feeling prepared. And I was so excited to finally go back to school because, you know, for that past two and a half years, all I had been dreaming about was getting to walk the hallways of a normal high school and be around normal kids. And so I was so excited. But for Caroline, like many other survivors, one of the first things she discovered was that the education the program had purported to provide never existed. On paper, it was as though they had never taken a single class. And when I went to transfer my credits, they said, yeah, this school was not accredited. We can't accept these credits and you're actually going to have to um, do them over again. Two and a half years down the drain. They wanted me to redo those school years. And at first I did. I tried. And it was so almost humiliating to me to be with kids that were so much younger, doing things that I had already done. I, I didn't want to redo all the hard work that I put into it. Vaughn, who we heard from in episode two, ran away from his program in the 90s. After his escape, he also tried to finish his education and experienced the same. I didn't graduate there, but I tried to apply for any of my credits. Like, I tried to apply for any of my time there. And, well, this is kind of a double whammy. When I did that, I found out I basically had to completely restart my high school diploma process, right? I had to start from freshman year because they weren't accredited with the local school system. Thrown into the world with no money, no support system, no high school credits, and no idea what to do, Caroline and Vaughn went down dangerous paths. I ultimately ended up at, at one point just kind of, you know, succumbing to the trauma. And I ended up experiencing addiction. I experienced homelessness. I was in a very violent relationship and had, had gone through a lot of trauma even after the program. I was homeless for a little while. I hitchhiked my way to the Midwest and I kind of just drifted for a little bit. I, I was homeless for a good amount of time. Many survivors fall victim to homelessness and addiction when they get out. It's important to understand that before a survivor can even begin to heal their relationships, tackle their emotional trauma, and build an identity, they must meet their immediate needs. Without food, water, shelter, support, or any clear path forward, this is where many survivors are lost. I think there were a lot of people in there that had issues, that had, that had drug issues. I know some that have died, uh, committed suicide. Rob, whose story we heard in Episode 5, got out of the TTI program Straight Incorporated in the 1980s and still talks to some of his peers from the program. But he knows of many who didn't make it. And as the years wore on, that number grew. In Episode 5, I talked about finding the obituaries of Straight Incorporated survivors who had died by suicide or addiction. But it wasn't just Straight. The overwhelming task of building a life, the loneliness, the fear... Often, survivors succumb to addiction or death by suicide in the aftermath of institutionalization. I know a lot of people who didn't make it out, who did go to those programs and died after, or are addicted to drugs and things that they, they didn't have those problems when they went in. I'm grateful that I am still here and that I did manage to help myself out of that. 
Tashi, whose experiences with conversion therapy in the TTI we heard in episode 9, reminded me that survivors who are still here, who can even call themselves survivors, are the lucky ones. Even survivors who had spent years after treatment in the throes of homelessness, crime, or addiction reminded me they were still alive. They had a phone or a computer that they were using to call me. They had a roof over their head and food in their stomachs. As you hear survivors tell their stories of rebuilding their lives, bear in mind that this is not a given. The survivors whose voices you've heard in this series are representative of many more who will never get to tell their stories. All of the survivors I spoke with were able to graduate, escape, or sign themselves out at 17 or 18. In the United States, 18 is the age at which a person becomes an adult and is able to make their own medical decisions. But TTI facilities predation sometimes does not end when a child in their care reaches the age of majority. When you turn 18, you know you can sign yourself out, but or you have to take the choice to sign yourself back in. And they would talk to parents and be like, hey, if she signs herself out, she's going to end up a drug addict. She's going to die. You have to set a boundary and be like, you can't come home. Or be like, oh, I'm not supporting your decision to go to college or like something like that. With programs discouraging parents from supporting their children's plans to leave, some survivors are faced with a gut-wrenching dilemma. Sign themselves out and have nowhere to go, or stay in the program, where at least there is a place to sleep. Survivor Chris remembers the pain of watching his peers make this impossible choice. It was a very emotionally wrought um, time for a lot of the people who, who aged out of the program because I would see them working through, like, realizing that they would have nowhere else to go, and then making the decision to sign themselves back in. Faced with the streets or more time in the program, some 18-year-olds sign themselves back in voluntarily. And some even go on to become paid program staff. So most of the staff were, were graduates of the program. And that's where I say that the whole thing with the ego got crazy. And it was like, you would get these kids that would run through the program, and they didn't have any other training besides that. Rob remembers that in the 80s, the model of straight ink assumed that many program graduates would come back in as staff. And still today, TTI programs are sometimes staffed in part by their own graduates or by people who had been sent away when they were younger. Charlie, a former staff member we heard from in episode 6, remembers kids in the program where she worked being held into their early 20s. A lot of education consultants helped the parents fight to get custody of their legal adult children. So a lot of them were against their will because their parents had power of attorney. So in the young adult house, I had some patients that were either my age or some that were even older than me. Sometimes legal adults remained in the program because they had nowhere else to go. Sometimes it was because their parents had been convinced to pursue custody even once they had passed the age of majority. And sometimes they had been indoctrinated. When I got out, I, I was very much brainwashed by this program. I believed everything that they had told me. So at first, I didn't see the program as a bad thing at all. I didn't really understand until many years later what had actually happened there and also the ramifications that it had on me psychologically. There's a pervasive narrative among parents, educational consultants, and judges that with time, survivors will realize that the program was actually helpful. The immediate shock will wear off, and as they age, survivors will realize that the program saved their lives. You're very rarely going to find a review ever written by a child that says, this helped me. Mainly because 
you have to get beyond that point in growth in your life to really be able to look back and evaluate and say, yeah, that did help me. Sharon, whose story we heard in the first and fourth episodes, sent her 12-year-old son Logan to a wilderness program and then to a therapeutic boarding school. When researching facilities for Logan, she discounted negative reviews written by young survivors with the idea that they simply hadn't matured enough to understand the benefits of what they had been through. But the reality is that with time, survivors often realize more and more the negative psychological effects of congregate care. Finally, one day, it occurred to me how awful that place was. And I started thinking, looking back at it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember the hollowness. I remember what it was like not being able to even talk to anyone or hug anyone for two and a half years. Caroline and Meg, the two survivors who went on to co-found the survivor advocacy organization Unsilenced, are now in their 30s. They were, in their own words, brainwashed for decades. Immediately upon leaving the TTI as teenagers, both of them repressed any negative feelings about the program. For years, they had been told that what they experienced was what they needed. It was best for them. For Meg, the realization came when a friend from her program, Chrysalis, died by suicide. I ended up, you know, being completely indoctrinated and not waking up until I was around 33. And the only reason that happened is because one of my Chrysalis sisters that I was there with committed suicide, and it just automatically shifted the narrative. When it happened, the memories came rushing back. And finally, Meg allowed herself to feel what she had known deep down for a long time. One of my best friends from the program, I still keep in contact with, knew exactly what it was. But I think there may have been a time or two where she would mention something, and I came at it defensively. And so she took that as she's just not ready, right? She's not ready to talk about it. And she was really the only one who, when I finally woke up and called and said, okay, wait, was Chrysalis abusive? She said, finally. Eventually, Meg went to her parents, the people who had made the decision to send her away. When I finally came to my parents, and it was relatively right after I woke up and started talking about this shift in narrative that I was experiencing. At first, it was kind of like, well, Meg, you know, just, you know, hold on there. I mean, it helped you, you know, and it was started off with that. They initially pushed back. Meg, who has heard hundreds of survivor stories in her role as the CEO of Unsilenced, says that's pretty normal. And then as I started explaining certain circumstances and putting it into terms of what helped me wake up, which was imagining my own children. I have four kids and imagining it happening to them and how I would feel when I started putting it into that perspective for my parents, they started second guessing it too. And then they started realizing, Oh, wow, this, this really was abusive. Parents spend tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars on the TTI, and to some extent, they've been brainwashed themselves. And, of course, they add their own waking up period and trauma that's attached to making a decision that would hurt me, right? Inadvertently, of course, but it hurt me. And so we've really been able to talk about our pain together and be able to process it. Meg's parents have supported her endeavors not only to heal her own trauma, but in her activism and efforts to raise awareness. As she healed her own wounds, as she spoke before legislatures, as she grew the unsilenced organization, they stood behind her. But the story of Meg's family is not typical. 
I know I'm very lucky and privileged to be able to have the parents I have. So many survivors out there don't get this experience and it breaks my heart. Like truly, uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to have your parents tell you that they, they think you're lying. And it happens to so many survivors. For many, being sent into the troubled teen industry put a strain on their family's relationship that was never healed. It really kind of tore my family apart for years. I never really had the relationship with my mom that I wanted. Because guess what? When you're away from your family for that long, you kind of learn how to live without them. And, um, and, and that's not anything that I can ever change. The majority of survivors I talk to have strained or non-existent relationships with the families that sent them away. Some survivors were disowned, some cut off contact. Some haven't seen their families in decades. Vaughn hasn't spoken to his siblings or parents since the day nearly 30 years ago that they watched the goons throw him into a van and drive him away. And how, what, what has it been like talking to your family about this? I mean, it's been, it's been decades I haven't, I haven't seen these people uh, since then. Many of those who do still speak with their parents have a strained relationship and avoid discussing their trauma at all. I am still in contact with my parents, but I don't have a good relationship with either of them. There's not really a way for me to get through to them on things. When it comes to treatment things specifically, my dad kind of refuses to talk about it, and my mom will, like start crying and kind of like having this victim complex around it. My parents and I just had no trust between us and we just had a horrible relationship. I just, I hadn't lived with them and I didn't really have a relationship with them for a long time. But, you know, we've had some really horrible conversations where it's like a lot of blaming still of me. And um, so that's hard. But I think, you know, as long as like we stay light and don't go into those things, things can generally be civil. I didn't talk about it for a while. I would say maybe like even two years after. And when it would come up in conversation, I would, if I would start to like indicate that it wasn't helpful, they would be like, oh, it saved your life and it saved our family. And we they spent a lot of money on the programs as well. So I feel like I felt guilt for that as well, because I know that they had to make some like difficult financial decisions for our family as a result of the money that they frankly wasted. In episode three, we heard from Chris, who was sent away when he was struggling with his mental health. When Chris got out of the TTI, he was left paralyzed by overmedication at his program. It was not something that came up in conversation until I actually started having seizures. Even after getting out, the aftercare team coordinated by the facility continued to improperly prescribe and dose his medications, leading to seizures on top of an existing physical disability, PTSD from the program, and paralysis. Still, Chris and his parents don't talk about it. They did not want to believe that I had severe PTSD and seizures from interventions that they had taken. And I'm just starting to get maybe to the point where we have a, I wouldn't describe it as like a family relationship as much as it would be like, we're both trying. Um, And it's been complicated. It's been difficult. The last conversation we had about anything related to the troubled teen industry was well over a year ago. For Chris, the trauma of the TTI shows up every single day not only emotionally, but physically. And the pain of feeling shut out by his parents only compounds it. He is one of many survivors for whom every day is a struggle. 
you know, I don't have as many nightmares as I did before. I, I definitely have a lot of trauma from it. I have to really limit how much time I spend talking about this and looking into it because it's really easy for me to get re-traumatized. I've had to do a lot of relearning things in building from scratch, which, you know, it, it takes a lot of persistence and can be exhausting. And so it, it can really be devastating to a lot of people's lives and their futures going to these schools. I'm naturally an extroverted, very open person. And I turned into an extremely introverted, silent person. I, I felt like I couldn't talk. I'd be like with my friends and I just I just couldn't even speak. You know, I was so traumatized. It was almost like selective mutism. During my research for this podcast, I came across an article called Why I Kidnapped My Daughter. In it, the author Simone describes hiring an educational consultant to help her 16-year-old daughter, let's call her Sophie, who is struggling with depression, suicidal ideation, and ADHD. Simone had her daughter gooned and taken to a wilderness program. After wilderness, Sophie was sent to a secondary placement. Simone writes about what she calls, quote, one of the best and most difficult decisions she's made as a parent. Best of all, she understands why we sent her away. I have no doubt that she'll someday appreciate having attended these two programs and being afforded the space and resources to do this hard work now while she's still young so she can move into her adulthood lighter, more capable, and full of hope. From this article, it seemed that Sophie and her family had been helped by her time in the troubled teen industry four years ago. In a good-faith effort to consider every perspective, I reached out to Simone, asking if she would be willing to talk with me about her daughter's and family's positive experience with the troubled teen industry. She wrote back a few weeks later. We're in a hard place. I'm now estranged from my daughter, who says she never wants to speak with me again and wishes I was dead. It's too painful for me to go into right now. Sorry, I can't be more helpful. I thought again of Logan, still at his secondary placement thousands of miles from home, and Sharon, whose glowing reviews of the program and reports of Logan's development remained in the back of my mind for months after we spoke. I couldn't help but fear that Sharon and Logan would one day end up like Simone and Sophie, like Caroline, Chris, Vaughn, or Jamie. Like any one of the many survivors I spoke to whose relationship with their families soured with every passing year after they got out. That Logan might carry with him similar trauma for years or even decades. That Sharon may have unwittingly broken her relationship with her son in an effort to get him help. I hope for Sharon and Logan a story like Meg's, one of reconciliation and understanding. I hope that parents like Sharon will hear survivors' stories and reconsider their choice. There's been a distrust in humans in general. I'm afraid of people. I'll I'll never trust them again. I hope that family court judges, caregivers, therapists, school counselors, educational consultants, the powers that be at the local, state, and federal levels, that those in the position to send adolescents into the troubled teen industry will look at the evidence and consider other options. I didn't go to doctors. I didn't go to therapists um, for a long time. You know, I I struggled on my own for a very long time with addiction and mental health. Stories of survivors left with crippling trust issues, sometimes to the extent that they won't seek therapy or basic medical care. Once you have the reputation of somebody who's been to a TTI program, you, like, they will just see that in your chart and be like, oh, so nobody's going to question the 10 different drugs he's on. We're just going to increase them. 
of survivors who found themselves more susceptible to abuse, unable to assess healthy boundaries within relationships. I found myself throughout the years for a while, like really tempted to go into some sort of cult or something because I didn't know another way. And it was like the most comfortable. And I've noticed that the kids that end up doing that, you know, they were indoctrinated into a cult as kids and um, it's hard to get out of. And maybe that's where they felt the safest. Maybe they have nowhere to go afterwards. You know, maybe they don't have money for a bus ticket home or their parents won't pick them up or they're terrified of the outside world or all their social skills, you know, they only matter in the, in the cult. Um, so they stay. Of survivors who carry the stigma of institutionalization with them well past their 18th birthdays. There's no, like, healing actually happening in viewing what that next stage of coming out of the program and reintegrating actually looks like in any way. As time goes by, I realize more and more in a way that it's still affecting the way I think and the way that I act. I asked every survivor I talked to one question. What would you say to kids who are currently in the TTI? Like, what do you wish you had heard while you were in it? Um, I don't know. But I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, uh, wow. Yeah. It's <laughs> also a really good question. Um, I mean, if I could speak to myself and hope to have another kid in that same position would benefit from hearing is that. I know it feels like that this is going to last forever. I promise you that it won't. And you will have your autonomy again, and you will have a life outside of this. And listen to yourself, listen to your gut. If you feel like something is wrong, probably because it is. Don't let them take your sense of self away from you. And your instincts and your gut reaction to how this situation is, is inherently correct to you. I would say to them, first and foremost, you're not crazy. You may have a lot of labels or words or diagnoses thrown at you, but you are still like in control of your own reality. You can trust yourself. I think it's huge because they really make you feel like you can't. You're not wrong for thinking that there's something wrong. Because there is. And sometimes it takes a little bit for us to realize it. But if you feel like something's wrong, don't be afraid to speak out about it. Because that's something that people need to hear. You deserve a wonderful, fulfilling, independent life after this. I hope that you want that too. Resoundingly, survivors wish they had known that they were not the problem. That they deserved happiness and healing and could trust that their feelings about what they experienced were valid. There's nothing, like, wrong with you. You're not the problem. It's not just you that's the problem. I don't think, like, people themselves are problems to be solved. When you're in a place like that, or when you're being, like, threatened with a place like that, it seems like it is the end of a lot of opportunities. It seems like it's the only option, and they want you to think that it's the only option. And so... Just after you get out, like, there's a bunch of people who are here to support you. Find community. Reach out. Don't go it alone. Getting out, something that was really helpful for me and has, like, been helpful for a lot of people is reconnecting with other people who have been through the industry is incredibly helpful because, like, no one else is really going to understand it. I would say don't be afraid to reach out for help. 
because I didn't have the social media that is out there now. And I think it's amazing that there's so much out there now. Like there's a subreddit, there are Instagram pages, Facebook pages. Um, so I think you utilize that and get, get into a really good therapy. Find a therapist who is knowledgeable about coercion and cults and the troubled teen industry. Then explore who you are and who you want to become. Forming your own identity outside of the programs. Like, you know, when you're in programs, you might lose your identity. So trying to get that back, like doing things that make you feel empowered, like really feeling empowered is important. The most grounding thing I've done to feel like I really inhabit myself is to find the care and support to transition. Like taking testosterone in and of itself feels so affirming that me in the program would have never known that this would have been the thing I needed. Because it doesn't have to be an end. There can be a new beginning. Well, I think my answer now has changed a lot since it did when I first left the program. Like one of my assignments before leaving was you have to write a letter to a new student. And I found that letter about last month. And I was talking about like, just trust the program. If you're compliant, it'll all be okay. And seeing myself write those words was like so jarring to me. Because at the time I was like a, like a poster child for the program, essentially. I don't want children coming out of the facilities and feeling like they're like broken and messed up forever. You are now the one in control of your narrative. Whatever you did, um, I put that loosely in air quotes, whatever you did still does not warrant actual child abuse. There's no way that, that a lot of these interventions are your fault. In the years since he left the program, Chris has started college and gotten engaged. My fiancé is wonderful. I never thought I would have the opportunity to like do all these things because of, of my experiences. Jamie got their degree and continues to pursue research into the TTI and is also a climate activist with Fridays for Future. Casey is a therapist in private practice working with other TTI survivors and survivors of cultic abuse. Sam is an artist at Purchase College and created the episode art for this podcast. I have a family now. I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very productive. I have a community. Vaughn recently retired from a career in the military and now has a family. After packing up all of their things and moving for a fresh start, Tashi is pursuing college again, on their own terms. I packed up everything in my car that I owned, and I moved out to a new city and just kind of started a new life for myself and just gained this sense of independence that felt so freeing. Meg and Caroline co-founded Unsilenced, and the organization has done and continues to do incredible work in supporting survivors and bringing transparency to the industry. Many of these survivors have found loving and supportive partners and communities. Many of them are now able to be out and visible as queer, trans, or non-binary. I feel like they're puppets sometimes, and like I'm, I'm still cutting the puppet strings. And it's relieving when I find another one and I get to sever it and be like, oh, you don't control me like this anymore. And every one of them has an appreciation for the freedom and the small joys in life. I never dreamed of being able to actually have things in my life that are worth living for, like relationships and my pets and my work and um, just freedom. You know, I even get surprised sometimes if I'm in a grocery store or something or I'm doing something I wasn't allowed to do. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have my own house to live in. You know, I can go do whatever I want to right now. I kind of feel like a like an obligation almost to give back and invest my time in honoring 
people who have not been able to, to share those stories. The courage and resilience of every survivor I had the privilege of interviewing for Gund will stay with me for the rest of my life. In their successes, recent survivors can find hope. And from their stories, perhaps the troubled teen industry can experience a reckoning. Next time on Gund, we'll talk about the steps that have been taken within the past few years towards regulating and even abolishing the troubled teen industry. And it begins with Paris Hilton. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. To get early access to episodes, as well as bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes content, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Original artwork for the series was created by Sam Doe. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise. <laughs>